Pack a bag, my friends. We're leaving tonight, and we're not coming back. Welcome to episode 24 of the Book Exchange Podcast, the show that takes you on a journey through the darkness in the middle of the night into the world of all things literary and all things books and reading. My name is Joseph, Jude Joseph Lovell, excuse me, your co-host and co-founder, and I'm joined by my brother, John. John, speak up. Hey, Jude. I bet you've never heard those two words used in tandem before. No, what do you mean? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, I'm I'm ready for this one. It's good. Should be should be a lot of fun. Yeah, going to be a wild ride, and uh, I think this is one that we've kind of, in a way, been sort of gearing up for for years and years and years. You know, because this has uh, as we're going to get into this topic. Um, th- this episode is called Thriller. To introduce it to the listening audience. With an exclamation point. I have to throw that with an exclamation point. (laughs) That's right. In case you didn't get the vibe from the opener there. But yeah, Yeah. so today we're going to be talking about thrillers and all and all kinds of thrillers. And uh, in a way, this one has been brewing for maybe longer than any of the other ones, you know, except with the exception of our 50 years of reading um, episode, which I'm going to bring up in a second. But this is going to be a fun topic and we're going to. Like last week, John, with the landscape as character in episode 23, this is going to go kind of far and wide, I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, this one, in, in, a, in a very real way, has been brewing for decades because, uh, as we'll get into, you know, we kind of, uh, some of our earliest, you know, books that we started to get excited about and exchange, you know, with each other and with friends have been, were um, thrillers in one way or another, so... Uh, and then I have to say, there's something just very satisfying. Maybe it's just me, <laughs> but there's something very satisfying about the the one word title. You know, like we did it, we did it back in episode. Oh gosh, like four or five with uh, the word isolation, and this one just being thriller. You know, it just uh, I don't know why. There's something just satisfying about being able to sum up the entire episode in just one word. So then that one does it. So this is this is going to be a good time, hopefully. Yeah, and maybe that has some more appeal than I think. Uh, our isolation episode is one of our most listened to out of all the episodes we've done so far. So, you well, know, <laughs> hopefully we have a lot of people jumping on the train in the middle of the night here for the thriller episode. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be fun. And, and the point you just made, we're going to get into it, but the point you just made about going back far and wide and uh, to the nascent days of our really heavy reading, it, that's not insignificant. And we'll get into why that is, I think. But yeah. um, so since we're since we're at the top of the show, um, I don't have any administrative notes today, John. Do you have anything you want to say administratively? No, I don't think so. I think we can just dive right in. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a slow uh, slow week in the office, so there's no new notes or updates in that in that in that regard. But let's uh, let's follow our format. Let's talk a little bit about the books that we're reading right now before we take a break and move on to the thrillers. Uh, John, I'm going to kick it over to you. What are you into? Well, you and I have been talking about it a little bit because I'm I'm actually deep into a, a book that's written by one of your favorite contemporary writers. I think it's safe to say, uh, Jennifer Egan. So, mm-hmm. and this is this is um, well, it's it, it could be classified as a thriller. I mean, this is this is why why this discussion's in, interesting. You know, we'll get into that maybe a little bit more later. But this is yeah. uh, let's see. 
Uh, it's like, I think it's her second or third novel, you would know for sure, but it's called Look At Me. It's a novel that came out back in 2001. And the, the actually the timing of the novel's release is really interesting for reasons that you know, um, uh, because it involves... Uh, one of the it's a it's a multi-stranded plot uh it's kind of a mystery story and like i said a bit of a thriller and it's a book about shifting identities for sure uh but it also has a lot to say about you know the fashion industry and modern media it's like like a lot of jennifer egan books she's a writer she's a really interesting writer and i i, I think you know i see it in our future that we may be discussing her work a little bit more because there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, this is, this is a big, fairly big book. It's almost, it's, it's almost 500 pages. And it's just, like I said, it's a multi-stranded tale. That's a bit of an, you know, uh, of a mystery ride, uh, that has, has to do among other things with the fashion industry. And like I said, um, I, I guess questions about modern identity and the way our identities are are kind of uh, shaped by media. And um, there's also a strand, one strand of the plot involves uh, a gentleman of Middle East extraction who sort of embeds himself and reinvents himself in the United States. And I'm not at the end of the book, you know, I'm not fully sure what his intent is, but he's a big part of the book. And this is really interesting because as I said, it was released I think in the summer of 2001 and then obviously 9-11 happened and, it, and as time went on, it came to be known that, you know, some of the perpetrators of, of those acts are men who had come over here several years before and kind of, you know, embedded themselves into American society with nefarious intent to say the least. So this is, it's very interesting that that was a, a strand of this plot before any of this was uncovered about 9-11 so uh and i'm i'm towards the end of it i'd say about a, i've got about 100 pages to go in it and um there's it's like i've been saying to you there's still many balls up in the air in this plot and i'm really intrigued to see how she's going to sort of bring it all work it all together and and bring this off hopefully in a satisfying way but uh it's a fascinating book and um you know she's got a lot of talent because not only does she work with a lot of, you know, uh, disparate elements and um, a kind of an unusual mix is often the case in a lot of her books of subject matter. Um, but she's also a, a fine writer. So she's able to kind of pull that off and uh, keep the pages turning. So we'll have to see how it all ends up. But uh, I found this, I'm, I'm finding this book to be a challenge, but also a really interesting um I, I think I would call it a thriller, you know, I think it's because I, I have no idea where it's going and, and it, it's keeping me interested. So that's what I got going on. And I know that you read this book a while back and, um, you know, you may have some brief thoughts about it yourself. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, so uh, I read it, geez, probably about a decade ago, but it's still kind of one of my favorite novels. I can say pretty confidently in the last 10 or 15 years is look at me that look at me, Jennifer Egan. I'm a big fan of Jennifer Egan and she's any writer that it sounds like a tired phrase or at least a nebulous one. But if there's any writer you could say is kind of tapped into the zeitgeist a little bit, it would be Jennifer Egan. Maybe it's because she's both a novelist and a journalist. And she's also very intellectually 
hungry person, kind of like you, John. And you, and that, yep. then that comes out in her in her work. Um, you know, even the title of the novel, "Look at Me," you know, was saying things before you even crack it open. You know, you knew it was going to get into some sort of interesting thematic zones with the, the title look at me and not only that it was like ahead of all social media you know yeah um which which if you could boil social media down to one phrase it might be look at me you know yeah good point. hey everybody look at me yeah great so but it also since it also has a fashion model element there was a that facet of it and that's the kind of writer jennifer egan is um so i you know that's a, that's a great book i i won't keep going on except i would just say jennifer egan for me you know when you play that little parlor game about you know which three people would you want to have at a dinner party for me it's always writers and i i could say without irony or any kind of smirk or anything i would want one of them to be a woman and jennifer egan would be that would be that person at my dinner party for sure that, i'm a big fan of hers that would be an interesting dinner party for sure just with with you and jennifer there so i can't even imagine with the other two guests. So yeah. It's, and I should say, you know, I'm reading this, this book was strongly recommended by you and you're the one who introduced me to Jennifer Egan. So um, kudos to you there, but uh, what are you reading? What, what do you have going on these days? Well, I'll tell you in a second, I just have to say this, it would be an interesting dinner party because I know one of them would be Stephen King. So, <laughs> so that'd be a, you know, come to my party. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be wild. I'm crashing that. <laughs> I'm crashing that. There's no question. <laughs> um, so, oh uh, yeah. So John, um, you, you know, you and I have been talking about it, but you're going to be interested to hear this. Um, I'm just cracking into a book. I have a unique opportunity since I um, have a little side gig as a, as a writer on books and culture for a magazine called Silver Sage, as we've said before. Um, that's kind of local here in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, but we do have readers uh, around the globe. And uh, the editor of Silver Sage asked me a couple months ago to, if I could try to reach out and look for books that are either newer or not even published yet and, and write some reviews of them, just trying to get ahead of the curve, I guess. So I reached out to a couple of publishers and I've had the opportunity to read um, two books. This is the second book that's not yet published. And but it's a it's by a writer that not many people know about yet. So the, the writer's name is Kirsten Valdez Quaid, and she is uh, she teaches writing at Princeton University, not too far from where I live in New Jersey. And she has one previous book. She's younger than we are. One previous book, um, a short story collection called Night at the Fiesta, that I had read about and had on like kind of a long list of books to give to you for our ever going book exchange because I. I know she happens to be a Catholic writer, but she also is a very lauded writer for her fairly young age. I think she's in like her late 30s. And anyway, this is her debut novel, and it's an expansion of one of the stories in her first collection. The book is called The Five Wounds. Mm. And it, it's a it's like a, I'm only 35 pages into it, but I can tell it's going to be really interesting, especially for readers like you you and me it's a it's kind of a multi-generational saga set in San, in the new mexico area and it's about a young man in his 30s actually 33 years old which plays into the plot because he's just been asked to take part in kind of a um 
not a play, but like kind of the living it, 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 during Holy Week in the Catholic community where he lives, he's been asked to play the part of Jesus in like a passion um, play, but like a, a walk through a particular area of the small town they live in in New Mexico, which is a, evidently a huge deal for the culture there and for the Catholics there. And this young man is taking it very seriously, I guess, because he's made some missteps. And one of the missteps or, or Maybe not missteps is the wrong word, but one of the the um, things that has happened to him in his life is he's just been offered this role, so to speak, of Jesus. And he's a single father who's estranged from his family, and he shows up at his house, and his 15-year-old daughter is on the doorstep, and she's pregnant. Mm. So she's, she's estranged from her mother, and so is he, and, they've just, and she's decided she's just going to shove in with him. But it's also appears to be multi-generational because he has like a great uncle who is like this kind of sage figure in his life who has invited him to be in this uh, passion uh, performance. And so, and he kind of early in the book, it seems like he kind of puts his stamp on everything. So the guy is concerned about how he's going to feel about having his daughter with him, who's 15 and pregnant and, and the book is going to go on from there, but it, it seems like it's a very, interesting intergenerational um intercultural saga with catholic elements in it so i'm i'm excited about it so that's what i'm reading yeah that 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 does sound really intriguing and i'll be really interested to hear about you know how it all comes together um but yeah kind of a neat opportunity for you to to get the leg up on most people and and uh you know experience some of these books before they even come out yeah, I should say it's an advanced copy. So the book is being published in, I think, April. So I'm going to write a review for the magazine and try to get it out there. And uh, I was even thinking uh, because I was I contacted the publisher, they sent me a, like kind of a press packet. And I thought if I was impressed enough by the book, there is a contact for the publicist if you want to like reach out. And uh, I don't live too far from Princeton. Maybe I could talk to the author if I had some guts. <laughs> So uh, it could lead to some interesting opportunities. I'm not sure if I would do that. But anyway, um, I'm looking forward to reading the book. And, and it's very promising so far in the early pages. I'll say that. Man, so, man, that's great. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So to be continued on that, John, either on the podcast or off it. So uh, anyway, that's what we're reading. And um, so we have a lot of thrillers and uh, thrilling books to discuss. So we'll take a quick break right here and we'll come back and I'll set some of the ground rules and we'll be off and running on the train. Sounds good. Okay, and we are back. You don't actually run on the train. The train does the running for you. So I kind of mixed the metaphors there. I hope I can be forgiven for that. But um, yeah, John. Um, so after lots of buildup, and uh, you could kind of feel this episode coming a while back, um, it's time to talk about some thrillers. And um, 
you know, I have to say by way of introduction, I do have kind of a setup question that I want to throw over the net to you and, and so, so we can start the volley off. But um, sure. I was going to say, like, you know, this is an interesting category because the more I was telling you off off camera, as it were, the more um, I, I thought about this. I, I love the idea of the episode, but I, I don't do a ton of thriller reading, quote unquote thrillers, but it depends on what a thriller is, as you were saying with jennifer egan's book but i don't do a lot of straight up thriller reading these days but the more i sort of went back through so a lot of the books i'm going to mention today are books i read a long time ago but it was very interesting for me and i'm i'm curious as part of this discussion to hear what it was like for you but the more i thought about it the more memories of reading books that you might call a thriller came back to me and i realized i'm I'm going to touch back now on that episode 15, which was our um, 50 years of reading episode um, back in October, where we talked about the beginning of, well, we talked about our earliest days of reading, but then we talked about how both of us took a hiatus when we were teenagers and we came back into reading and then went kind of full bear, full bore from like our late teens or early twenties on. Right. Right. So for me, and I think I think it's safe to say for you, but I know for me, thriller books or books that I would call thrillers were a huge part of that period of my reading when I was really getting back into reading. And I think the more I think about it, and we'll talk about it now, but I think they really, these kind of books, you know, are easy to laugh off if you're sort of a pretentious literary type, but they really sort of made almost kind of a doorway for me i realized kind of looking back on it now into uh heavy reading but they kind of played a great service to me by kicking the door open to my reading enthusiasm and they they planted the seeds that grew into other things and they made me like a heavy reader you know and a lot of these books that i read in my late teens and early 20s that i'm going to mention today um, did that for me, you know, like they really kind of planted themselves in me and I still remember many of them and including some like key details in the books that, that we'll talk about. So I just wanted to say that kind of right out of the gate, like, you know, it, this is a category that's kind of like, Oh, get out your popcorn. And it, it could be easy to dismiss if you have like sort of pretentious, you know, um, intentions with our podcast or whatever, talking about books, but, I don't know. I think I, I'm, I'm gaining respect for thriller and exciting adventure type books, even though some of them, you know, are, are not, don't have as much, you know, merit in terms of literary quality, whatever that means, and et cetera, that we'll get into. So that was a realization I had before I asked my first question. Do you want to play off that or do you have anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, my, my, yeah, my thought, my thought for that one. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't know that was how you're going to start. So I'm, this is just off the cuff, but um, it's an interesting observation to make. And I think, I think one of the, one of the reasons for that and one of the, you know, perhaps merits or values of this type of book really is that, you know, reading is about many things as we've talked about on this show before. One of them is simply pleasure, you know? Um, and I think, mm -hmm. I think thrillers really, I, I know this happened for you. I know it happened for me. And it's happened for many people around the world where you get into a 
good thriller and maybe you haven't even read that many books in your life but you get hooked by one it gets its hooks in you and you kind of realize the power of a of a of a riveting story and how it can like kind of the, the phrase that's been going through my my head is you know nail you to the chair it's like you want to do other things maybe you have to do other things <laughs> maybe you had other plans for the next hour but you kind of can't like the cliche is i couldn't put it down you know and so right from that in it, from that point of view, you know, I can see how uh, thrillers could be sort of a gateway into kind of a life of reading because what they teach you is, like I said, the va- the real you know power of a good story, and that's that's in our makeup from time immemorial. You know, people sitting around a fire telling stories to each other, and you just you know, I can imagine people being riveted as far back as humanity goes. Um. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it just kind of makes you realize, hey, you know, because, you know, I, we, I have teenagers, you have teenagers, you know, or preteens, and you, you try to get them to read, and they're like, reading is the most boring thing you could possibly do, right? But it's not boring at all. <laughs> you know, and you're like, no, that's not true at all. Well, it's not boring at all if, if you, if, like I said, if a story gets its hooks into you, all of a sudden you're, you're just turning those pages trying to figure out you want to know what happens next. And the, all of a sudden reading becomes a different experience. And um, I, yeah, I think that's what you're tapping into there. And I think that's one of the many, you know, valuable qualities of, of this type of, of reading. And we're going to get into, because I have some, I definitely have some thoughts about the word thriller and whether that's a genre or not and all that kind of stuff, but maybe, Maybe I'm anticipating what you might, what your setup question might be, but um, I think that's what you're in part, what you're tapping into there. And in that sense, yes, it's a, it's a very powerful way into a life, a, a richer life of reading because it, because it shows you, you know, what books can do and how they can, how entertaining they can be. Yeah. And even if your sort of literary sensibilities are a touch more, you know, you think, you think of them as a touch more sophisticated uh, than than you know your common thriller from the airport, and I'm implicating myself in this, in that statement. Even if that's where you sort of find yourself, uh, it's interesting to ask yourself the question. Whenever you know, even with books in other genres and maybe of quote unquote higher literary quality, um, one thing that you never stop seeing, and and it's used in every case, I think, as a superlative, is a sentence down the line of this: "It reads like a thriller." You know, yeah. like it's always yeah. used like a, like a, the highest praise, you know, that's because a thriller is a book that you just, you, you, not only does it get its hook, hooks in you, like you said, John, but like the good ones, like you, you blow off things to get back to them, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you, uh, you bag your call with your girlfriend or, you know, your boyfriend or whatever, so you can get back to the book you're reading. And, uh, I, you know, there's high art in that and high, uh, achievement. So, yep. yeah, I mean, um, and and I and it's a good segue because I'm interested in those thoughts that you were saying that you're going to bring into the discussion here. So I'll, I'll I'll do one of my I've done this a couple times, John. I'll do one of my like slam dunk questions that leaves you under an immense amount of pressure. <laughs> and I'll say <laughs> and I'll just say what hey, John, if you had to, you know, if you, you got, you know, 20 seconds in an elevator, right? Like the, the, what is a thriller? What I mean, how would you take a swing at that? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, 
No, no. I mean, that, that is, that gets to the heart of the matter. I've certainly been thinking about it, you know, prepping for this show. And, and, um, you know, one thought I did want to, I, I did want to talk about is, is, um, I don't really think, I don't see personally thriller as a genre. Um, at least not, in, at least not in the conventional way, because I realize, you know, to me, a thriller in quotes, if you remember like the old Walden books or like some of those old, you know, bookstores back in the day, even Barnes and Noble, you know, uh, to many readers frustration and writers for sure, I would imagine, you know, you'd have like a wall of romance books, you'd have a wall of sports books and they'd be labeled, you know, you'd have a wall of whatever horror books you might, I don't remember, but you might have had a wall of thrillers, you know, and those are usually, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, well, we'll talk about what that means. But um, to me, that's that's too thriller is broader than that for me. And, and my answer would be, you know, what is a thriller? A thriller can be any book in any of those genres I just mentioned. And, we, you know, mo- mostly we seem to be talking about fiction here, but I'm certainly going to talk about some nonfiction books along the way. Because uh, and right away, that might broaden out the definition of a thriller. To me, a thriller is a book that, like I said, it nails you to your chair and keeps you turning the pages because you want to know what happens next. And that's essentially it for me. And, and what, I think of, what I like about that is that it, you know, uh, it could be a science fiction book. It could be a horror book. It certainly could be a detective story. But, it, you know, when you think thriller, you, you kind of most of us, or at least of a certain generation, you know, uh, tend to think either like kind of like a detective novel or like borders on mystery in one way or another, maybe mistaken identity, maybe a murder that's being solved. But, you know, somewhere in that vein or when we were growing up, this was and we'll get into this. I know when we were growing up, this was really a big sort of subgenre, the techno thriller. Right. You know, right. Tom right. and, um, you know, Dean Koontz and uh, not Dean Koontz. Um, uh, you know, we'll get Stephen Koontz. Stephen Koontz. I'm sorry. Yeah. Dean Koontz is a different. Yeah. But uh, although he probably wrote some thrillers, too. But, uh, you know, that was oh, yeah. Yeah. subgenre. Um, but what I like about my definition, and it's not my definition, but, you know, that's the way I think about it, is that, you know, it could be any kind. You know, I've had I've and. And you know I'm very very nerdy reader. I mean, but I've been riveted to my chair, you know, uh, reading something about well, like the Swerve, for example. That's not it. You wouldn't call that a thriller. We talked about this a few episodes, mm-hmm. but it was about in part it was about the hunt, you know, finding and discovering this ancient manuscript that had been lost to time for a long time. You, you wouldn't necessarily call that book a thriller, but that element of it was kind of thrilling to me. You know, I wanted to see how did this happen? And, and it, it kept me kind of riveted. And that's mm-hmm. really what I, what I, how I look at the word thriller in quotes is a, a book that just keeps you riveted and keeps those pages turning. That's how I would answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. And I think, you know, I think you raise a good point, which is that it's, it's, it's like sort of bigger than genre, you know, Every every book that's a thriller now is kind of hyphenated, like echo thriller, you know, or uh, supernatural thriller, right? Political thriller, techno thriller, you know, like. Well, there, there, and uh, I didn't think of that, but that's a great point. 
Yeah, and I, I think I agree with you. And the and the only thing I might add to it, if we could have had like a really broad brush definition, I think I'm with you. It's any book, and it could be fiction or nonfiction. Although interestingly, and this falls out the way you and I are as listeners to this podcast would know, I came up with a goose egg on nonfiction, with one possible exception um, that we could get into later. For me, it was I was much more in the fiction frame of mind, and I just let it stay that way. I know I've read a lot of nonfiction books that read like thrillers, you know, like yeah. like the blurb type statement that I was just saying before. But that's kind of where my mind went, and I just kind of let it go there. But the, the only other thing I would add to it, so it's like a, a book that like sort of grabs you, you know, all the cliches from ver from the from the back of these books come into play. Grabs you by the lapels, holds you in your chair, keeps you turning pages. Yeah, I think all that stuff kind of applies. But for me, and when you're finished with it, and and I think this is true, I know it is for you, and I think it is true for a lot of people. You know, at the, and also when you when you finish it. You had it, it was fun on top of whatever else it was. It was fun. It was a fun. You talked about pleasure at the beginning and that and thrillers to me, you know, no matter what type of, you know, book they end up being, they're fun. And if and if you get to the end and it wasn't any fun, then it's not a thriller in my book. You know, it was like a, you know, a bummer. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> in there that um, that can be true. I would argue that that's true, even if the subject matter itself is not fun. Like, let's say it's a, a yeah. killer, or, or that's not the kind of fun you're talking about. But there's, but there's, you know, it's fun, kind of in the sense of gets your adrenaline pumping, and you're, you know, and you're just kind of like, you know, uh, you're dying to know what happens next. There's something fun about that being state. <laughs> Um, that may not necessarily, it doesn't mean the subject matter is necessarily fun. Just like with movies, you know, there's some pretty dark movies. No Country for Old Men is a very, is a very dark movie, but that movie's riveting. Mm -hmm. And the experience of watching it is thrilling. Yeah, or that there's like so many fans of the movie Seven, you know, anything by David Fincher, you know, so many people love the movie Seven. And there's no fun in that movie from start to finish. You know, but like, but it's just like, you know, I didn't see where it was going or, you know, I didn't know it was going there or I can't believe it did that. Or, you know, that's the kind of fun I'm talking like the pleasure of being startled, surprised, you know, thrown off your game, you know, and and thrillers have a way of doing that almost across all those genres we've been speaking of. Absolutely. You know. Yep. So, uh, John, uh, I think we're I wanted to say also that. um we're going to veer off and, and, you know, it might reflect that in our conversation, but we're going to veer off from kind of our, a lot of times we'll pick a category for the, for our episodes and we'll say, you know, we're going to talk about this kind of book and then, you know, here's my top three or top five and here's yours and we trade back and forth. We decided not to do that this time just because, you know, maybe it's because this, this um, topic sort of goes out beyond genre and we all, uh, we, you know, we talked about our list ahead of time and we're kind of all over the place. So we're going to kind of freeform it. But again, just to, um, and I certainly don't think we need to stick to chronological order or anything like that. But I was going to ask you, John, you know, can you, you know, pick one from your list that's maybe like the earliest <laughs> in your chron personal chronology or your memory or one of the earliest? Yeah. And let's start getting into titles. Tell us what it is and, and what was it about that book that made an impression on you? 
Yeah, I, I certainly can. And, and, you know, when I, one of the first books that just jumped right into my mind is one of those books I read, you know, a very long time ago by a writer who is known, you know, primarily as being a writer of thrillers of one kind or, or another. And you're going to know it very well as well. Um, and that book is Sphere by Michael Crichton. Um, mm-hmm. and great one. Yeah. Michael Crichton is, is I brought him up in our isolation episode to bring to, to, uh, throw back to that episode again, um, because of his, uh, another thriller, uh, in, in part with the science fiction edge to it called the Andromeda strain, where a bunch of scientists are working underneath the ground somewhere out in the desert, uh, trying to contain an, uh, intergalactic <laughs> strain of virus, you know, that could destroy the entire planet, you know, all of humanity. <laughs> um, but sphere is just, to me, is like one of the, one of the just, you know, perfect examples of, of, you remember and I remember we laughed about this back in the 1980s we still laugh about it because there was a blurb on the book that said this book ought to come with hot buttered popcorn and uh (laughs) (laughs) but it's good it's true and and it's just it's you know it's briefly it's a story of a scientific team that gets called out to the middle of the I think it's the Pacific Ocean and they go diving all the way down to the to the bottom of, of of the of said ocean and there's some kind of um unknown object embedded in the in the the bottom of the sea and as they invest you know they come to find out that it's of alien origin and they have to sort of investigate and you know they eventually figure out a way to they figure out some kind of vessel or ship figure out how to get on board and you know chaos ensues from there (laughs) but uh you know and this is the guy who wrote jurassic park which say what you want jurassic park is so you know, embedded in our culture now that people tend to forget. And I know you'll remember because our dad was really, even our dad, who's a scientist, you know, almost a priest was, was, you know, jacked up when that book came out because the premise was, I mean, regardless of what you think of Jurassic Park and the franchise, you know, it, it, it spawned, I mean, that idea of like bringing back DNA and then creating a, you know, a sort of safari type park with live dinosaurs is incredible. And it, it, I mean, it sells itself. Oh, absolutely. And it, it just, yeah. all you have to do is come up with that idea and you let some people go to it. And it just, I mean, you can't get a better premise for a thriller right there. But, um, no, it's ingenious. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So that's, and he like, and I want to, John, I'll let you go on, but I want to talk a little about Jurassic Park too. But go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll write. Anyway, Sphere is a, it's just, you know, and I don't, I think it was the first, certainly the first book by Michael Crichton I'd ever read, kind of the first so, sort of science fiction-y thriller I'd ever read. And I was just absolutely impaled to that book, you know, the entire time I was reading it. It was just <laughs> so much fun. You know, there are many chapters that kind of end with this, like, slam-bang cliffhanger ending, and it just, you know, deepens the mystery. And um, I, I'm sure, you know, I had one of my sons read it recently, a couple of them, and they were they were riveted to it. You know, I, I'm sure if I went back and, you know, maybe the writing quality isn't William Faulkner or Steinbeck, um, but I'm sure it just sucked me right back into it. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a mo- sort of a more conventional example. But that was one of the early books I read that did exactly what I described to you. I mean, I had so much fun reading that book. I remember you and I kind of went through a bunch of other Michael Crichton books just on the strength of reading one or two of them. So, 
Well, precisely. Like uh, a sphere is such a great example of if if any if if anybody's listening, and I certainly don't want you to, but if you turn it off now, you know, like uh, yeah. like uh, I've just committed the ultimate faux pas of podcasting. But if you if you had to leave now, you know, go find go find sphere and read it. You'll have an example of what we're talking about. So it might be old school for younger listeners. I don't know. We don't have a lot of those. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, Sphere is a perfect example. And John, I, I know you'll remember this. I don't want to give anything away, but um, there's a moment late in that book involving like decoding a message that comes from the uh, from the the spherical object. You know, they're trying to figure out what it is, and the guy is dec- um, the first message that that came over. They figured out a way to decode it and write the letters out. And late in the book, one guy goes back to the original message and decodes it again. He realizes that there was a mistake yeah. of two letters. Yeah. And, he read, and then he reads it again at the end and it dispels it out at the tail end of the chapter. That is one of my earliest moments of like falling out of my chair, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, it changed the entire story, you know, but just that one error. And this guy was just bored and he went back and he decided to do it again. And I was, I remember, I remember that to this day. And I read it probably around 18 or 19, you know, and from there on, you know, we, do you want to say something? No, I just said, it's great. It's awesome. It is great. And like, and, and, you know, and here I am, I'm 50 years old. I remember that, you know, absolutely vividly. And from then on, I, I was like, I, you know, hold my calls, you know, I was going to finish the book. And, you know, the older I get and the more I try to write myself, you know, I'm I'm a person who likes to write fiction and I I don't really write thrillers, you know, but I do come to appreciate storytelling like that. You know, none of my books have a moment like that, I assure you, you know, (laughs) but um, anyway, I don't know about that. One of them may come up later. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) we'll we'll see. I guess I'm not the person to judge, but um. You know, it's funny when you bring that up, uh, bringing up Sphere, and that was on my list. It's it's a great one. I mean, go out and read it if you want to have a good time. Just just do yourself a favor. Yeah. You know, um, but I was going to go go to another book, but you know, you brought up Jurassic Park, and that actually goes back further in our lives. And yeah, so like you know, just for a second, because we don't want to focus only on Michael Crichton, who was a great thriller writer. He's deceased. He's been dead for a long time, but. The Jurassic Park, the original hardcover, I, you know, John and I are dating ourselves, I guess, but we can remember it coming out. We were teenagers, came out in hardcover. My dad uh, was into kind of thrillerish books at the time, which is interesting because he was never much of a model, novel reader. Right. But he did go through a fa- phase in the 80s where he would read fiction for a while. And he... There was a history with John in particular because John, as a little boy, was really into dinosaurs and everybody knew it and everybody still remembers that about John. I was too, but it was really a John thing. And my dad saw that in the store. The old hardcover uh, dust jacket had a, a skeleton, you know, the profile skeleton of a T-Rex on it. Yeah. My dad grabbed it basically just because of that and the premise that you talked about. And from there, like that ripped through our family. You know, and I remember reading the original Jurassic Park, which has a harder and kind of a nastier edge in some places than uh, the Steven Spielberg film. Yeah. Um, And just that premise, like you said, and the idea, um, the brilliant idea of just um, bringing dinosaurs back and then, you know, the greedy, the greedy notion of turning it into a theme park and everybody getting their comeuppance is just genius. But perfect. 
not only that, it was so far ahead of the of the. You talk about being tapping in the zeitgeist. I just saw two nights ago on the news a story updating updating um, where we're at with the whole thing about cloning. And there are some researchers in Japan who have figured basically figured out a way to extract, you know, DNA or whatever it is from like woolly mammoths. And they, I think they successfully like, you know, breeded one or something. I, I, I wish I could remember the details, but they they're doing what was described in that book now. <laughs> and it, it's possible to get like, you know, um, uh, material from like a frozen woolly mammoth or animal and extract it and uh, splice it with like an, an elephant. I think that's what happened. He splice it with an elephant. Oh boy. And created like some kind of, yeah, like, and, and, and so we're, we're kind of there, you know? And it's so that's another element of how brilliant that book was. Cause it not only was it a brilliant idea for thriller, but it's, it was also, I mean, we're talking about 30, 35 years ago. Yeah. But they, you know, so, they, they obviously learned nothing from Dr. Ian Malcolm. You know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're spending so much time, you know, doing what you could. You never stop to think about what you should. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a lot of memorable stuff from there. But anyway, just to move on from for the sake of time to move on from Michael Crichton, I'll throw one out there. I, You know, you talked about techno thrillers early and there was a book I, I, I talked in episode 15 for those who heard it. Uh, about our, our, which was called 50 Years of Reading, about our whole reading live, and how I got back into reading heavily thanks to a friend of mine who suggested some books. And one of the one of the books he suggested to me on that day was called Final Flight, and it was written by Stephen Koontz, who was a techno thriller writer. Mm-hmm. And it was his sophomore book. He he had he had come burst out of the scene with a book called Flight of the Intruder, which I brought up in that episode. And it kind of put him on the map right next to Tom Clancy with the hunt for red October. So this is back in the eighties. And uh, my friend had suggested his second book. I got it in the mass market paperback. It was called final flight. It was a thriller set on top of an aircraft carrier. And it was a conventional thriller plot. You know, they're bad guys, terrorists or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember I was really riveted by that book. And I remember at the end, another moment that just blew my mind at the end of that book. And this one I will spoil because it's kind of a little more obscure. But um, at the very end, the, the basically the bad guy was getting away with like a nuclear warhead in a in a jet, in a, uh, you know, a, a fighter jet that had taken off the deck. Of a of an aircraft carrier, and the hero in the book, who was a pilot, didn't know. It, you know, if he doesn't stop the guy, you know, he he, he detonates the bomb and starts World War Three, right? Right. It's like so. Like you can, yeah. <laughs> so he flew. He took off off the same deck, and used his jet as a missile, and ran and and pulled the eject button right as his jet was about to slam into the other one. Right. Nice. You know. And then they both collide, and I guess somehow the bomb didn't go. I, I don't remember all the details, but I remember being absolutely amazed by the fact that the guy, like, I thought that was audacious, and, like, the guy just, like, rammed the jet with his jet and just pulled out at the last second. Yeah. You know, of course, he survived or whatever. But I remember just being like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at, the, at that ending. And that's what I'm talking about. It was just like a jolt of fire at the end of the book, and it was cool. You know, so that's a that's an example. Yeah, that, you know, that's a great one. And there are a bunch of others from the 
from that period. I, you know, another one that you and I could probably both talk about uh, is kind of the classic World War, one of the classic World War II thrillers, The, the Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. Remember Jack Higgins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. And, I was going to bring him up. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe uh, if you're going to talk about him later, we don't have to talk about him now, but that, that, uh, that's another classic about a plot to kidnap um, uh, Winston Churchill. All of a sudden I drew right. But um, that's a great book. Just totally different setting, but a, a, just a great thriller. Lots of fun. Yeah, well, all I was going to say about that and Jack Higgins in general, Jack Higgins was like a, you know, I, I think, I believe he's still alive, you know. Wow. Um, and he, he might be writing like a lot of these older thriller writers are still turning them out. It's, it's like them writing with somebody else and it's probably the other person, that, yeah. you know, that's doing the, the yeoman's work or whatever. But Jack Higgins ended up turning out, geez, probably a couple hundred thrillers. But what I remember, The Eagle Has Landed is his most famous. It was turned into a famous film in the 70s with Donald Sutherland. Yeah, and it was just this, you know, wartime thriller about a plot to kidnap Churchill, like you said. But I remember very vividly being, um, I think, around that same stage of life, you know, like in my late teens and finding out something about that book. And I took it out of the library and I remember and this came back to me while researching this. I kind of packed this memory away, but I remember cracking that book open and literally reading it literally in one night, you know, mm. which uh, and, and I, I can probably put on three fingers books that I've done that with because I'm I'm not a fast reader that book I, I got about halfway through in the same day and I thought I'm just going for the finish line <laughs> you know I am not gonna stop I guess I had nothing to do <laughs> <laughs> but um but I remember really well that I just I just I couldn't stop reading it literally you know so that's a great example also yeah so but I mean you know from there, so you know, there's a, there's other ones that are kind of earlier um, thrillers on my list, but th those writers, people like Tom Clancy, who's deceased now, Michael Crichton's deceased, Jack Higgins, um, Stephen Coons, other people like that. Um, not only did they kind of give us a good time at the time, and they wrote these books that we remember really well, but they planted in us like kind of this. I mean, we you know, you would finish a book by these guys and you would go to like the Walden books or the library or whatever it was. And you would just, you would just need to find the next one by that same person you hadn't read yet, you know? Yeah. And I also have like a lot of respect for that too, because like, you know, again, if you read in like other genres or, you know, more literary type of books or whatever, there's like, you know, they don't necessarily have that quality or, or a lot of them, you finish one, you think, uh, you know, I got to find all six books by this person. But with some of these thriller books, you just like, whatever that was, I want more of that, you know? So it's like something I, I kind of respect that about those guys, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Another, I mean, another guy like that would be somebody like, um, you know, the great Robert Ludlum, who, uh, you know, wrote, among other things, the Bourne, the Jason Bourne books. But I mean... Yeah, he got into such a rhythm that like all his books would have a similar title. You know, you, there's even, I think there's even a, like a an app or a game that's like a random Robert Ludlum title generator. You know, you come up with like <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> you use the word the, then you fill in a region, then you fill in like some kind of word like situation or problem or, or you know, and it's like you know the uh, right. <laughs> the Grenada Junction, you know, or you know, like and the Aquitaine progression is one of them I remember. But anyway, um, and then there's you know there's guys like James Patterson too, who I think does other stuff now, but you know uh, made a name for himself writing these sort of like crime thrillers like. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Kiss the Girls is one of them, you know. Yeah. Oftentimes. Alex Cross. Yeah. Oftentimes these writers will, you know, come up with a some kind of a convention for their titles that they'll all like, like he used, um, you know, Childhood Nursery Rhymes, Kiss the Girls, Along Came a Spider. Um, but you have that. I can't remember her name now, but there's one very successful woman. Uh, writer of thrillers who uses that A is for Apple kind of convention. She kind of, mm-hmm. she sort yeah. of went through the whole alphabet and she's probably still going. I don't know. But, um, no, her, actually, her name's Sue Grafton and she died at like X, literally. Oh, wow. <laughs> she just, yeah, yeah, she died at like either Y or X on her list. Sue Grafton is her name. I never read her books, but, you know, props to her. She had a, she had a thing going there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, sometimes a thriller genre, well, as I said, it's not really a genre, but sometimes what people would call thrillers, they kind of, that's one sort of downside is they often will, depending on who the writer is, will, um, you know, fall into some kind of a convention or even a formula, if you want to use like that word. And then it comes becomes literally, you know, formulaic. Um, but mm-hmm. certainly, you know, for people who, you know, some people are just content to read like what we call "quote unquote" an airport thriller that'll just kind of kill a couple of an hour, uh, hours on a plane or somewhere else or in a waiting room, and that's fine. You know, that's that's great. And then there's some people who, you know, kind of because this may be their 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 own you know tastes or their bent or whatever, you know, are looking for a little bit more in the writing department. But I think as you and I, you know, talked about this, you know, there's certainly plenty of books that I would characterize as thrillers that were written that are also, you know, achieve a high literary quality. Wouldn't you say? And I, I, maybe you have an example or two. Um, I know I do. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna, you know, that's a good transition because I think, like I said, um, you know, this type of book, at least, at least for me. And I think, I think to some degree for you, John, maybe not for everybody, because there are people who, like thrillers when they're 20 and they like them the same way when they're 50, you know, and that's great, you know? Um, But they do kind of kick the door open to, to your reading life. And they have this way of fueling the imagination. And and for some people, I think, I think for you and I, this is fairly true. They kind of, you know, sort of grease the tracks in a way and, and set us down the road and we eventually expanded into other areas, you know, and got into, other types of books and for you there was a lot of nonfiction stuff but along the way you still you know so we sort of got into more literary writers or more classic writers and stuff but there are still to your point many um writers who wrote very thrilling or thriller-esque books that were of a little bit i guess you would have to say of a higher little literary quality or maybe had um you know sort of deeper ideas um and uh i for me just to kick off that discussion john maybe the gold standard 
for me personally in that area would be Graham Greene, mm. um, yeah, who the English novelist who I actually haven't. So he was very famous for his uh, for writing both thrillers or sort of lighter books, I guess you might say, and heavier books that tend to have religious themes. He was a Roman Catholic. And so he kind of vacillated between the two and he wrote many like um, thrillers in the middle of the 20th century. And uh, one of the best that kind of limbs the territory between thrillers and a higher literary work for me is called the quiet American, mm. you know, which is, which is set in uh, Vietnam. And um, it went, and it came out in the fifties and it's kind of a, uh, I guess like kind of a intelligence spy thriller, but one of the, tremendous qualities of it is that it um, sort of diagnosed a lot of the difficulties uh, that were taking place on the ground that led to the Vietnam War way before the Vietnam War happened, you know, between like the French and the Vietnamese and some British intelligence. And his, his novel, The Quiet American, was set, there, was set in that environment in the 50s. And uh, it, it, it involved like uh, a murder and um, this older and crusty and sort of jaded um, British intelligence agent getting paired up with a younger and more idealistic one trying to solve this murder in uh, in Vietnam. But um, it was a riveting book and uh, filled with uh, the ambiguities that can be around the intelligence business, especially in, a, in an environment of the world that's like a powder keg and clearly sort of leading into war. So that's one example. Uh, do you? Ha what are some of yours? Uh, well, a comment on that real quick because you made me think of a couple things. Number one, um, I've never thought of this before, but that the way you just described that book seems very much like kind of a precursor to Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke. And I know that I know that mm -hmm. take place in the Vietnam region. It's not so much that, but uh, you know, kind of the idea of of somebody kind of getting caught up in the intrigue that happens around, you know, conflicts like that and how it often leads to, you know, a lot of soul searching and kind of moral questioning and confusion in the protagonist. You know, I just never thought I'd never connected those two books before, but I wonder if uh, the quiet American was somewhere in his brain when he was working on tree of smoke. So that's just an interesting, you know, side note. Uh, but Graham green is yeah. a superb example, you know, among many other, you know, kind of riveting books that he wrote. He's well known for having written the screenplay for the great thriller movie, The, Th the Third Man, um, which is, uh, I, that's, a, I, as a side note, you know, I can't recommend that movie enough. It's a tremendous movie, just beautifully made by the great British filmmaker, Carol Reed, uh, features a young, you know, Orson Welles in one of the key roles, Harry Lyme, um, but it's got a, it's it's a great screenplay and it's kind of a twisty, you know, complicated sort of political thriller. That's uh, just another example of what Graham Greene could do as a thriller writer. Um, highly recommend. And, and that was actually written originally as a screenplay, and then it was later published because the movie was became well known. But uh, you know, highly recommend watching that movie for people who haven't seen it. But yeah, there, there, you know, there are a lot of examples, of course, of, of um, you know, writers who, you know, had the talent to really kind of get a little deeper, as you said, and, and, and you know, had the writing talent to really sort of, sort of uh, you know, 
raise your eyebrows just from the way that they could write, but also, you know, have the ability to keep the pages turning. You know, even I mentioned this before, but a much more contemporary example, uh, which is a great mix of the two would be no country for old men by Cormac McCarthy. Um, that, oh, great one, yeah. And he just, I think he set out to write a book that was going to move rapidly and, and be kind of a thriller in that way. Uh, but it's also just a fascinating kind of meditation on, you know, uh, uh, the West in a sense and the way um, an older generation grapples with some of, the, some of the things that are happening in the world and some of the evil in the world um, because it has this, you know, it's narrated by this old kind of crusty Texas sheriff who's, seeing things that he just can't, as he says, uh, you know, some of the evil you see nowadays, you, you just can't take its measure, you know? So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great example of uh, an author kind of at the height of his powers, you know, grappling with essentially the mystery of evil and why people, why men do harm to each other. But in the setting of this, you know, very gritty, you know, violence, high stakes, Texas thriller involving guns and outlaws and, uh, drugs and all the rest. So um, that's a really just a shining contemporary example of, of of a great thriller. And of course, it was adapted into an outstanding movie, you know, directed by the Coen brothers. So that's, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one example that comes to mind. Uh, I don't know if you have, yeah. I don't know if you have others that you wanted to bring up. Yeah, I was going to bring up at least one other writer, but um, with Cormac McCarthy, it's interesting. It's a great example of like a, uh, uh, I would call, uh, you know, it sounds so pretentious. I don't know how else to say it, but like sort of a more literary thriller. But it was interesting in the case of McCarthy because he had made his reputation on books that were violent, but, uh, but sort of very high literary merit with the critics, whatever that means. And then he's still alive, but late in his life, you know, he became he's kind of reclusive and he doesn't put out books at a very rapid clip at all. But back in the mid two thousands, he put out two books in a row that both had thriller esque. And I think to your point, I think they were intended. He wrote them. It's interesting that he did this. He wrote them with the intention of having books that were sort of more um, accessible or sort of with a thriller type of pacing. You know, and and there were very no country for old men was one of them. Then there's of course his famous book called The Road, yeah, which won the Pulitzer Prize, um, which is more of this you know father son survival story in a dystopian setting. You know, which makes it sound like The Hunger Games or something, but I assure you it's uh, it's Cormac McCarthy's work. But they both were thriller type of books. I would call them. They were shorter and they really moved and they were written in a a much more um, clipped and efficient style than some of the earlier books he was the most famous for. But the the other writer I wanted to bring up, John, just to pivot a little bit, that that's also a modern example. I mean, he passed away fairly recently, but to me, he stood out in my mind as, a, as an example, a great example also, and I would recommend this writer to people listening who like thriller type of books, um, but he's not without his challenges, and I'm thinking about the British spy master, John le Carré. Mm, yeah. um, who died, died like maybe about a year, year and a half ago. So I, I, my personal history with him is interesting. I'm not an expert on him. I, he has many, many books. Um, and I've become a little more interested in him recently, but I remember vividly reading two of his books as a younger man in my early 20s. One was called, I've never read his most famous, the book that sort of made him, or the two early books he wrote because he had a very long career. 
that were the most famous were these spy thrillers called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was made into a successful film, and also The Little Drummer Girl, which I think has been made into a couple adaptations. Never read those books, but one of his earliest novels was a book, a more obscure one called The Honorable Schoolboy, including the British spelling, Honor, H-O-N-O-U-R, The Honorable School Schoolboy. Mm-hmm. And I read, I read that book, and then in the mid-'90s, he came out with a book called The Russia House, which was also adapted into a film. And I, rem- I read both of those, and I, I remember just they both kind of bored me to tears. <laughs> you know, because they were – I didn't appreciate what John le Carré was about. He's a much more nuanced, far more nuanced writer. Um, he is kind of a spy novelist, and he, as he got older and further into his career, he was churning out books that were – kind of thrillers but and but they had they weren't just spy books they had some of them were about international markets so there was one about the pharmaceutical industry there were some about you know like um international drug trade terrorism um but he was somebody who had a tremendous amount of eloquence and um was very british in his manner and in his writing he wrote in a very clip style very little um flourishes around his prose and um it was just very subtle and reserved his style but more recently i've read a couple of his more recent books um and i forget the last one i read i the 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 name is slipping my mind unfortunately and i had a much greater appreciation of what he was doing he was really kind of an elegant craftsman but his his pacing was much different than like a you know, like a uh, Michael Crichton or somebody like that. Um, it's a sort kind of a, I hate to say it when you're talking about a British writer, but a bit more refined, but there's a tremendous subtlety going there. But he was actually a very interesting man. I heard a lot of interviews with him and he was a, a, a great writer. So I would recommend his stuff. So that's another example. That's a tremendous example because, you know, that's a perfect sort of hybrid between, because I think his, his reputation was always good. But it kind of grew steadily as he got older, and now you know he's very uh-huh. he's highly regarded now. And obviously, there's something as you were saying, you know, much earlier in the in the episode here that there's just something to be said for, you know, to to kind of paraphrase a, an old Billy Joel song for staying on the charts, as it were, and being able to write yeah, being able to write books that people want to read, and he did that for decades. Um, but also to do so and kind of with by creating your own style and, you know, uh, kind of having a, an elegant uh, way to do it is just all the more impressive. By the way, I do not remember him writing a book about the pharmaceutical industry that, you know, I kind of did a double take when you, when you said that, I don't know if you heard it, but I, I don't, that, I don't remember that at all. Well, his book, and I remember that book. It's called The Constant Gardener. It was made into a film. Oh, okay. Um, I've never seen I, that movie, so I didn't even realize that was him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it was him, and and it and and I've never read it, so I don't know if it you know gets into the details. I I just know there's a pharmaceutical company involved in the plot of that, and uh, interesting. And one of the one of the the one I just read. I wish I could. I'm just blanking. I wish I could remember the title. Uh, one of his more recent books. Um, had to do with the uh, like the financial crash around 2008, but with some like sort of crime intrigue, and uh, I think the Russians were involved and stuff like that. So um, he just you know, <laughs> and just as a side note, not to not to spend too much time on him, but he was a fascinating. I heard an interview with him on uh, uh, what do you call Fresh Air with Terry Gross, 
um, around the publication of one of his later books called The Perfect Spy. And I remember I was riveted. I was at work and I stayed in my car for like 30 extra minutes and it was late going back in because he wrote that novel, The Perfect Spy, and it was based on his father, who was an intelligence operative, but who was kind of nuts, I guess. And he like would tell lies about who he was and what he did. And so John Le Carre, the person, that's a pseudonym, but the the person never really knew who his father was. And he had died a long time ago. And he wrote this fairly big novel. It's like 600 pages called The Perfect Spy about what he could dig into and find out about his own father's life in real life. And I, I remember I was just amazed to hear that, wow. you know, especially because he was like a stranger to him. Like he didn't, he, and when he was around him, he didn't know if he was telling the truth. <laughs> I was going to say, there, there, are, there are layers to that title, aren't there? When you describe the book like that. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, he's a good example. Yeah. I want to, I want to touch on, if you don't mind, I want to touch on before we end this conversation, I do want to touch on something that came up before that, um, you know, for my money, uh, a nonfiction book can easily be a thriller if it's, you know, kind of written the right way, so to speak. And, you know, is able to, yeah, yeah. Um, often, you know, the subject matter or the, or the uh, incident that's being uh, covered um, is a riveting one or, you know, a fascinating one in and of its, in, in and of itself. So when a writer who has the ability to write and kind of keep the pages turning and, you know, quote unquote, almost plot the book like they would a thriller. But uh, the subject matter is something that really happened, you know, and there are many examples of this, you know, whether it's somebody like John Krakauer, you know, narrating what happened to or, or speculating what happened to Christopher McCandless, you know, and Into the Wild or something like that, or um, his own book Into Thin Air, you know, about a real life journey up up the Himalayas, I think. Um you know, those are not "quote unquote" fiction books, but they certainly could function as thrillers. Those are just—that's a couple examples. But I wanted to bring up two that I had on my list, and one is uh, yeah, one is about a hundred years old, actually. Um, wow! I read it, you know, in the last ten years, and it's and it's a riveting book. It's just a it's just a riveting book. I mean, it's and it's, of course it's about a, a very famous occurrence, and it's the book is called Endurance. It's by a, man, a guy named Alfred Lansing. He's telling the story of the Shackleton expedition down to the Antarctic. And the Antarctic mm. was famously the name of his ship. And they took an ill-fated, you know, stab at trying to reach the South Pole. And this book, you know, really expertly kind of narrates that entire voyage and how, you know, it was a doomed voyage, how they, they came within, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, a stone's throw almost, you know, navigationally of, of reaching their destination, but they got stuck in pack ice and the, and the boat just couldn't go any further. And they're at the bottom of the world and just, you know, absolutely, you know, bone crushing cold. And they get they really close, but the boat just can't, it just gets frozen in. And then like literally, you know, the world is turning and they just as they're going into the the dark part, you know, of the, of the year, they basically have to gut out, you know, seven or eight months <laughs> in darkness, literal darkness, you know, in the ice and try to survive while their boat is just frozen in. And eventually the ice freezes so much and shifts and it just literally crushes the boat. So at that point they have nowhere, they, they don't even have a way to get out. They only, they have a few lifeboats and that's it. 
And so he just recounts the the way that the you know the crew just kind of like unfortunately it's like Agatha Christie almost you know it's like one by one they fall because they just it's impossible to to survive in those conditions. And uh, but it's just a riveting account of an absolutely unbelievable ordeal um, that I said is over a hundred years old, but still I mean I challenge anybody who picks up that book who hasn't read about the Shackleton expedition. You won't be able to put it down. And it, it literally, it, it has a, you talk about a quote unquote thriller, the ending. I, I don't want to spoil it, but the, it, right down to the final pages um, are, it's like a very cinematic ending um, that, that I don't want to give away. But it's a great, that's a great riveting nonfiction book that I would absolutely call a thriller. Because I, you know, I was just, you know, uh, you know, couldn't wait to get to the end of it. So that's that's an that's an older example. Another one I have to bring up. I have to wait a minute, John. Technical question. Sorry to interrupt you. I want to hear about your other one. Uh, Is that book still available? Like, is that is that book ever in print? Oh yeah, yeah. It's. I think it's always been in print. Um, Oh yeah. In fact, there's a. I I know. I was just looking it up before the show. There's a there's a 100th anniversary anniversary printing of it. Wow. With I, I believe uh, it has a forward by somebody, uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, who wrote you know a bunch of books about you know doomed sea voyages and stuff, and wrote a book about the yeah. Mayflower. Wrote a new introduction to it, but yeah, it's absolutely available. Um, oh yeah, cool. Okay, go on. Another one that, and I have to nod uh, to a, a brother-in-law of ours, which I won't I won't name him, but um, he'll know who he is. And he's a real champion for this book. Now, I, I, I kind of found – I came to this book on my own, but I know it's one of his favorite books of the last several years. And he really um, – it was on my shelf, but I told him I hadn't read it, and he's like, what are you waiting for? You know, drop everything and read this book. And, you, know, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. But, uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, literally, <laughs> it's literally how he said it. It be persuasive. Yeah, but he's absolutely right. It's one of the most riveting books that I've read in the last – decade i would say for sure and it's and it's i think right now is literally being filmed by martin scorsese uh and it's called killers of the flower moon and the author is david mm. grand who wrote another book that was well known and became was also adapted into a movie called the lost city of z which is also a, a kind of a riveting thriller uh but this is i mean we could spend at least an episode talking about killers of the flower moon it's an absolutely fascinating and riveting story true to life about how uh, there's an area of Oklahoma and there's an Indian tribe there, the Osage tribe, and they owned land that was sitting on uh, one of the richest oil reserves in the entire United States. And this was discovered. And it's the very heartbreaking story of how, you know, certain people who are local, there's a local sheriff, there are local ranchers who kind of conspire in order to slowly kind of wrest the land rights away from the Osage Indians. Um, they kind of let them have it nominally, but there's all kind of loopholes where, you know, they need quote unquote guardians who can help them, you know, kind of manage the land. And, uh, you know, they sign a treaty with them saying that, you know, certain parts of their tribe, you know, have the rights to land and there's sort of a hereditary um, uh, ownership so that, you know, children of members of the Osage tribe 
would also have a piece of this very, very, very valuable land. Uh, but a whole, and this is in, I think, the 1930s. But one of the local ranchers who's kind of like a local, you know, heavyweight and, you know, politician um, organizes this, you know, clandestine campaign essentially to kill off members of the Osage tribe, particularly the women, so that, you know, they would <laughs> stop having children. And, um, and it was basically a campaign of murder. And uh, many, you know, according to documentation, over 20 of these Native American tribes, men and women were murdered. But Gran, with his research, pieces together that it could be, you know, scores more. And he does, there's a very kind of moving epilogue to the book where he talks to um, ancestors of some of the some of the men and particularly the women who were murdered. And he described several of these murders um, and they were murdered in all kinds of ways from explosions to, you know, uh, poisonings to gunshots. And woven into the book also is um, there's an ambitious uh, government, I don't know what to call him, figure, but we all know his name because uh, his name was J. Edgar Hoover. And this case kind of led to the birth of the FBI. And he was a very ambitious young, you know, kind of lawman who, uh, you know, kind of saw it, you know, kind of. You know, a little, a little bit, you know, sort of used this this horrible situation to kind of further his career, but it, it led to the establishment of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But it's just, it's an unbelievable story that as you read, I remember reading it going, this can't be true, this can't be true. No, they're not going to murder another mother, you know, in cold blood. Okay, yes, they did. And as Grant sort of was doing the research, he just kind of very skillfully uncovers you know, that the story goes wider and wider and wider. And you, you just can't believe, you know, the level of corruption and what they did to these people who, uh, this noble race of people who, of course, have, have already, like every Native American tribe, as we've discussed in our uh, Tommy Orange episode, you know, had so much to endure at the hands of this country. But th that book, I mean, you just can't, you're just, your mind is blown by what actually happened. You can't believe it's real. And you, you, you just turning pages to see how much worse can this get? And it just gets deeper and uglier. So again, going back to something we said earlier, you know, the subject matter is not fun or pretty, but the way it's laid out is absolutely thrilling. And um, that's a, that's an example of a nonfiction book that once you get into it, I, whether it's you or anybody listening to this, I challenge you to put that book down. You just won't believe it what what actually happened so that, that's a great example that I, I had to bring up yeah yeah definitely you haven't have you read that, that one yet or or no no i've never read it i didn't even really know what it was about that's why i'm sitting here listening because i've just heard the name over and over but i i didn't really know what it had to do with so well you know to quote our brother-in-law you know what what are you doing what are you what are you waiting for <laughs> let's stop right now so you can read it yeah, I know. I've heard him say that a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I got a bit better get on that, you know. Um, but yeah, I'd like that. No, I mean, there's so many nonfiction books um, that could fit into kind of this broad category. Although I didn't really come come up with a ton, but um, but you know, I've certainly read books over the years that were you know sort of even more riveting because they were true. And uh, I would just mention. I mean, I think we can begin to wrap it up but i would just 
there was a couple of them that occurred to me while you were talking that for me were kind of significant that I remember from the years. Uh, one of which was be so there's like a whole subgenre also of like uh, sort of thriller type books that tell the story of the true story of like military exploits, you know, from all all throughout history, you know. But I, um, there one in particular, a great shining example of like a investigative book about something that you know something that happened very tragically uh, was a pretty famous book and also a famous movie that was called Black Hawk Down. Mm. You know, from the early from the early nineties, it, it's a good film, but I remember it was it, so it was a, it's a, a recount, like an investigative journalistic recount of um, the story of what took place in the early nineties, right after Bill Clinton became president of the United States, um, with the U- U.S. Army Rangers who were um, stationed in uh, Mogadishu in Somalia, and they were um, essentially they were on a mission there because the, that country was in greatly destabilized by these like warring like warlords you know um who were kind of you know had thrown the entire country into chaos and they got into this uh conflagration with the the local you know the battling warlords there in the middle of mogadishu in the middle of the day in the fall of 1993 and they um um got trapped in the city these u.s army rangers got trapped when the 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 um fighters or the uh you know the i don't know what what the word i want is but the um locals like kind of the uh the rebels or whatever they shot two helicopters down in the middle of mogadishu the middle of the city in broad daylight and the the people the the survivors of the crash helicopters were trapped in the city and all these warring tribes and natives who couldn't stand the united states just kind of sort of you know collapsed in on them and uh killed some of them and and drug their bodies through the streets and stuff. And it became this like real life tense thriller trying to extract the people that survived the crash. And they were repeatedly calling for backup from, from the higher echelons of the United States defense. And uh, very famously the defense, the secretary of the defense at the time um, denied them the backup, you know, that they needed to, to, to get those people out. Wow. And, I remember with me, it played into me personally because I, ha- I was in the U.S. Army at the time in a, in a rapid deployment force in the infantry. And uh, you know this, John, we were actually called to the airport um, to fly to Africa um, one night. And uh, it, was at, it was actually our mother's birthday, September 27th, 1993. We were called. We, I, I went four hours across Georgia, Fort Stewart, Georgia. We were sitting there on the tarmac with uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and tanks. And we were called to the tarmac of the airport and we spent overnight on the airport waiting for literally for the green light to go to Africa. And they um, overnight, they said, you know, the mission's been called off. We were going to go support the Rangers over in um, in Somalia. And we heard the mission got called off. They put us back on the bus, drove us back to Fort Benning, Georgia, and we never went. And that was um, that was three days before the events that were recounted in Black Hawk Down. So, wow. Um, I just had, I just had kind of a personal connection to that. I always remember that book. And then uh, just to bring up really quick, and then we can kind of wrap it up, or I'll give you the chance to make any last thoughts yourself. Um, there was also another nonfiction book. We talked before, writer I'm not really a huge fan of. In, in most cases, the uh, Japanese writer, Haruki Murakami. Yeah. 
But in the mid-90s, he came out with an investigative uh, book, nonfiction book, uh, about a, uh, um, a searing gas attack on the Tokyo subway uh, called Underground. And it's still kind of my favorite book that I read by him because I never got too into his novels. But um, there was a there was sort of a terrorist act where these um, terrorists put searing gas on the subway in the middle of like a Tokyo in the middle of a working day and poisoned a bunch of people. And Haruki Murakami wrote a nonfiction account of that where he tracked down all the people who were victims of this attack and he interviewed them and um, and he did some just investigative reporting on kind of who did who who perpetrated the attacks and why they did that. But it ended up being kind of this really interesting discourse on the entire Japanese psyche because of the way that the people who he interviewed responded to being attacked. I remember very vividly, like many of the people were like, you know, maybe I deserved it, you know, or, yeah. or, um, you know, I was just in the wrong place. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know why I was even working anyway. And what's the point, you know, like, and it was just very, it turned into this very interesting examination of the state of mind of the Japanese working class in uh, like the mid nineties. So I remember that book very well too, if anybody's looking for a wild diversion. So um, anyway, I think we've, I think we can wrap it up. We've kind of gone pretty far and wide. There were many other books I, I had on my list that we could have brought up. Um, we never even, we never really got into the discussion of like kind of longer thrillers <laughs> that we had, that we had read. Is there any, is there any other book that you wanted to mention specifically or other thoughts you had, John? Yeah, there, there's a, there's a couple of things I wanted to, I wanted to get into, but we may not have time. Um, I, okay. one is uh, I do want to recognize, you know, as I was thinking of uh, different examples of this type of book, um, there are a number of women who've been very successful writing, you know, riveting books like this. And I, I, one that came to mind for me very early on was Daphne du Maurier, who uh, Mm, I've I've read her stories and, and um, I guess she has one novel called Rebecca. I don't know if she has others, Um, but two or three of her stories in particular, even though they're shorter fiction were absolutely riveting and they're famous. Two of them are, you know, one is the birds, the original version of the birds. I just have to mention that because I think I mentioned it before on this podcast, but it, mm-hmm. it's very, very, it's like Stephen King's, the Shun, you know, reacted to the film of The Shining, how he famously didn't like it. De Maurier apparently abhorred uh, Hitchcock's version of, of the birds. And I can see why, because having seen that great film and um, having read her book, they're totally different. And De Maurier, you know, takes place on this, you know, British in this British coastal region. It's much more of a, what you might call a quote unquote eco thriller. Uh, Cause basically a, you know, a bunch of seabirds invading a small British coastal town, but it has that same kind of creeping menace as they kind of amass and the, the, the residents of the town don't know what's going on and they're acting strange. And then they start attacking and it just kind of ends with this all out war, you know, this kind of wave of, of birds coming off of the, the ocean and just, you know, attacking this village. And it's just, it's an it's just a riveting story. And then of course, her other very famous one is called Don't Look Now, uh, which is the story of a couple that goes to Venice and they start seeing a, you know, kind of a fleeting, catching fleeting glimpses throughout this very foggy and mysterious city of a, of, of a young girl in a red 
raincoat. Um, that uh, and that's how their daughter died was in this like raincoat and she drowned. And it's a it's like kind of a ghost story in a way, but very just incredibly riveting stuff. So um, and another very well known uh, woman writer is Patricia Highsmith, who I've actually never read, but she's the author of the famous series of books with a character named Ripley. Um, yeah, and uh, just I just want to mention her because supposedly she's one of the you know the great masters of of writing kind of like you know gripping thrilling books and you know uh, I wish I could give an example from my own experience but uh, she's one of the recognized you know masters like I said and then of course there's Agatha Christie who uh, you know her books are immediately lumped into the mystery genre whatever that is but I just want to you know I recently read one of her, one of her books because one, my youngest son read it. And he loved it. He's like, Dad, you got to read this. And I'd never read it. It was called, um, used to be called Ten Little Indians. But that's, that uh, the title has since been changed to, um, and then there were none. But I mean, this book was, it was just a classic Agatha Christie style mystery where, you know, one by one, like I said before, you know, the characters are being bumped off. But uh, I couldn't put it down. I mean, I read it in less than a day, I think, like you were saying. I mean, it just, I just had to know, you know, who was next. And how are they going to go out? And um, you know, she wrote over a hundred books, and she's one of the one of the uh, one of the greatest selling writers of all time. And like you were saying at the outset, that's just not easy to do. And um, you know, I just think her talent should certainly be recognized. And then, um, if you don't mind, one other thing I was going to bring up, and maybe you could just talk her a couple minutes. I have to bring this up, so. You might, maybe you know it's coming, maybe you don't. I certainly didn't tell you I was going to do this. But so remember when you put me on the spot earlier at the, at the outset of this discussion, where now you're going to be on the spot. But oh, great. Well, you set out to write, and, and in my opinion, very successfully wrote a thriller, for lack of a better word, called Deliver Me. And we don't have to get into the specifics of the plot of that book, but it's, it's a really fun. It's, it's one of these, it's like Scorsese's After Hours or something, or like one of these tales where, you know, it's one wild night. You know, you trace what happens um, to this one character in one night and things just go from bad to worse and you just can't believe the situation this guy finds himself in. Just to wrap, I think it would be fun to wrap things up. Could you quickly, you know, tell us what that book is about? And I just want to get into what, what made you want to try that you know try to write a thriller and how tricky was it to do so oh yeah now why would i talk about one of my own books i mean i i, I don't want to you know i don't want to pump it up or anything or perhaps get people to go out and read it <laughs> you know i know what you mean but i i want to get into like what how difficult was it to do that because i you know as a way to kind of appreciate that that these books are maybe not quite as easy as they might seem no, definitely not. And I, I should have brought that up earlier, not with respect to my, my own writing, but um, I meant to say in some kind of broad way, um, because I, I happened to just read a book by one of our old classmates we brought up last time, named Stephen Knapp, uh, which was also a thriller book, like a wartime art heist thriller called The Bones of St. Pierre. And I was writing a review for that on Amazon, and I, I know that's not what you asked me about, but I was just conscious of the fact as I read that book, which is a very good book and a very fun book, um, that what he what he was doing and he it, it definitely wasn't Faulkner or like 
had literally quality, but he kept it together and had an interesting plot and kept it moving. Mm. And all those elements I've had a lot of respect for from reading thrillers and thriller-like books over the years, and I thought he did a nice job with that in his book, but it's not easy at all. I mean, it's not easy to write a novel at all mm. and to come up with a story that, that you can keep together. Um, but, and thank you for, thank you for bringing the book up. Um, but yeah, so that, that what I won't talk long, John, but it was interesting because I've always had kind of a, a respect for thrillers as we've been saying, but I, I would say recently in the sort of somewhere in my mind, as I get a little older, I try to fit in books that I think are just more fun and thrillers are very reliable for that. However you define thriller. And I, I like injecting that into my reading and I've sort of gradually developed a respect for it. So somewhere in the back of my head, I thought it would be fun to try one one day. But I'm, I'm not really very good with plotting. And a lot of thriller writers are exceptional about coming up with complicated plots and throwing a lot of balls up in the air, like you say, and then tying them all up at the end. And I tell you, that takes some intellectual metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, sort of always question whether I had that. But I, I always I like to challenge myself as a, as a fiction writer. And I thought if I had a good idea, I would try it. And, and Deliver Me was the confluence of basically having writer's block. And I had, but it was really interesting the way that book happened because um, I had one conversation with our older brother who had, not to get too much into detail, but basically to make some extra coin, he had recently gotten a job uh, delivering packages for Amazon on the side, you know, just to make some extra money, a uh, single dad and, and, you know, uh, was trying to do the right thing by his family. And I was interested in, you know, him taking that job came out of some pretty, in my opinion, honorable intentions, but he was telling me about taking that work up and he's a hard worker and honest guy and a good, a great father. And, um, I, all of a sudden I just out of nowhere, and this happens sometimes, and you got to accept it as a gift if you're a fiction writer. Like the idea popped into my head of what if there were a book? And you you mentioned John. I'm gonna I'm gonna geek out here. You mentioned um, the idea uh, a particular type of movie or book that takes place all in one night. Well, there's a fancy term for that, and it's called. I, I hope I don't mangle. It's called a Ceridian Ceridian novel, huh. and I think Ceridian or Ceridian story. Ceridian is a fancy word for, if I have that right, because sometimes I get it mixed up with Cerulean, which is color blue, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but Ceridian novel, and it's also a term of having to do with the eyes, if I'm not mistaken, but it, it means it takes place in the events of one overnight. So I was interested in the idea of a Ceridian novel in the back of my head. And somewhere in there, when I started Deliver Me, I had read, again, Hiroki Murakami. He had a short novel called, I think it was called After Dark. And it was a Ceridian novel. It took place all in one night. So I just got a gift. I was talking with our brother. He told me about his job. And it just dropped into my head. What if a person who was struggling to raise children, a dad, and trying to do the right thing, took a job similar to what our brother had done, delivering packages. And he went out on his first night. And it just all went to blank. Pardon my French. You know, like. And. Uh, that was the grain. I just thought it would be really cool to put a guy in a car to deliver packages. And from the 
from the jump, from the first delivery, it just all goes to crap. <laughs> and I thought I would read that book. That would be fun. Now, how am I going to do it? And <laughs> I, I just kind of set a character in a car and set him out there. And I said, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to write this book. But really interestingly, not to keep talking, but that is a story. And it didn't turn out to be a long book. It's, a, it's only, you know, like I think it's less than 200 pages. It was extremely difficult to get to bring to the end. And that is an example of a book I wrote about half, literally half the book. Um, and I had a, a guy almost literally painted into a corner in the story and I did not know where to go. <laughs> and I actually dropped it. I dropped it and started something else for about six or seven months, which, and this is one of the few books I've ever written that I just got seven months down the road, sort of spinning my wheels. And I said, you know what? I put too much into that idea of deliver me. And it was inspired by my brother. And I, I had this idea to dedicate it to him. And I said, I'm, I just can't give up. I'm going to go back to the book. I'm going to get him out of that corner and I'm going to finish it. And I did, you know, and I, and you can debate how it turned out, but it was a really gratifying experience to have done that. And I was pleased with the results, but it was very tough to write. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. Well, I, I thought that book was a lot of fun. It's certainly, like you said, it's, it's kind of lean and mean only 130 something pages. And uh, you know, we're not going to, this isn't a review of that story, but it does, it drops you into the situation. As you said, it almost immediately goes to hell. And then from that point on, you kind of got, you know, you're, you're buckled in and you just want to see what happens to this guy and how much crazier it can get. And it, it does get pretty crazy, you know, as things move along. So uh, anyway, I just think it was, it's interesting to note that you tried this yourself. And I, I think, I think you had success with it. That was in my opinion, one of the one of the more fun books that you've ever written. So if people want to check that out, they can. But yeah, it's this has been a cool conversation, and you know there are tons of books that we didn't even bring up. But you know that's maybe for part two or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for for bringing that up. I I would uh, just add. I remember thinking when I was writing that book, my only rules was that I would have no rules. So I I really tried to open myself up and say anything goes in this story. So hopefully it reflects that. But, um, and I think maybe a lot of thriller writers, you know, try to give themselves the freedom, maybe some of the more imaginative ones who aren't, you know, so tied intellectually to such a complicated plot, you know, probably try to give themselves license to go crazy also. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so yeah, so that great discussion, John, I mean, it's just a lot of fun. And, uh, Hopefully folks listening to this will get an idea to check some of these books out uh, or other ones. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll say what we're going to read next and then do a little tease for uh, a very special edition of our podcast is coming up soon. Quick break. Yeah. Just before we do that, just really quick. Um, I'll just mention again, we haven't checked in quite a while. Um, anybody out there who thinks that we, you know, there's an egregious miss on this list or wants to recommend a, a thriller that they really love to our listeners. You can go to our Anchor uh, podcast website, and there is a number, mm. or, or no, there's a way to leave a voicemail, and we'll play it on the show. So if there's a book that you really want to, you're just like, man, why didn't they mention XYZ, or people need to know about this book, more people need to know about this book, whatever, 
uh, feel free to call it in and um, we'll share that with our listeners, you know, next week or whatever. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, Now we can break. All right. Good point. And we'll take the quick break now. Okay, John, um, I'll go first to talk about what I'm going to be reading next, um, and then I'll kick it over to you because I think you're going to handle the tease for us also. Yeah. So, like I said, I just I just started on Kirsten Valdez Quaid's The Five Wounds. Really looking forward to that. So that's what I'm reading at the moment. But I do have a plan um, that may come back into one of our future episodes <laughs> here pretty soon to read another novel after that. Uh, John brought it up on an earlier podcast, I believe. Uh, I think this came up earlier. Um, It's a book that actually I discovered uh, as a debut novel. I didn't read it. I brought it up to John. He was so interested that he went out and sprung for it, bought it in hardcover. And and in turn, he found it so interesting that he thought that, that I should read it and invest in it. So I did. And the book is called, no, I haven't read it yet. The book is called Via Negativa, or Via Negativa, if you're going to use the Latin pronunciation. And, uh, geez, I forget the name of the writer, John. you remember the author's name? Daniel Hornsby is the author's name. Okay, thanks. Yeah, Daniel Hornsby, debut novelist. And um, for those who listened to that episode where John brought it up, it's just a, it's a story about a, uh, not necessarily disgrace, but kind of a defrocked, I think, priest who goes on kind of a road trip with a, uh, a non-human companion um, after l- losing his position. And uh, I don't know much about it other than that. He gets in the car and, and as John brought up uh, in the previous episode, he has this notion to turn his vehicle into kind of a traveling uh, hermitage, like a monk's hermitage and perhaps go on a spiritual journey as well as a, you know, road journey. And that's really all I know about it, but th- it was uh you know, in the in the long history of the exchange, John, it meant something to you. You told me it did. My ears perked up, and now I'm going to read it. So that's my next read. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's that really is the exchange because you told me about it. I went on, grabbed it, circles back to you. Now I've read it. You're, you're going to be reading it. So, yeah, I think I think you know we may be discussing that in the near future. So I don't want to say too much about it, but um. I'm really glad you're going to be reading it. It certainly uh, has stuck in my memory for sure. And uh, I think at some point we're going to have an interesting discussion about it. So yeah. uh, just quickly, what I'm, so I'm, I'm close to finishing the Jennifer Egan book, uh, Look at Me. And so my next book after that is, 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 a, is you know, a wild turn, as you might expect. And it comes from comes via one of my favorite writers that's come up on this podcast a few times before, Seamus Heaney, 
but it's a translation. It's a translation of a medieval Irish epic poem. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of the poem because it's in Irish and I just have no idea how to pronounce, <laughs> you know, Irish, the Irish language, Irish Gaelic. I just, I'm not even going to try. But his version is called <laughs> Sweeney Estray. Um, and because the, the hero of the, of the poem is named Mad Sweeney. And so I'll just read you a little description of it. Um, uh, the, here in, in Seamus Heaney's version of the medieval I Irish work, and it has a title, I can't pronounce it. Um, the hero Mad Sweeney undergoes a series of purgatorial adventures after he's cursed by a saint and exiled to the trees at the Battle of Moira. The poetry spoken by this mad king is among the richest and the most immediately appealing in the whole canon of Gaelic literature. So there you go. It's a, it's a, it's a frustrating approach. 20th century um, translation of a medieval Irish epic poem. And uh, I'm with Shane Asini with his incomparable skills with language and writing, I'm sure it's going to be, if you have any interest in Irish culture, which you know I do, and we have that in our family, um, I think this is going to be a very entertaining and probably illuminating in more ways than one uh, thing to read. It's short, and I've, I've never I've never really read uh, an, an Irish uh, epic poem from, you know, the past, and so I'm really looking forward to see what Seamus Heaney does with it. As you know, he's famous for having translated uh, the famous epic poem Beowulf, and I loved that. I loved what he did with that, with the language. And uh, I think this is going to be, if nothing else, in the words of Mon Monty Python, something completely different. So, looking forward to digging it. John, John, you had to go and do that on me again, where I'm like shaking my head over the <laughs> stuff that John Lovell chooses. But, you know, but I know in all seriousness, Seamus Haney, the Nobel Prize winner, has been a a huge writer for John. And uh, I have to say, John, like, so that's a cool choice, but I have to say, I have never heard of that in my entire life. So uh, congratulations. <laughs> you, you, you caught me unawares. You know, I had heard of it, but it, it came up in a book with the title is escaping me now. Um, oh, there's a book I read last year about a guy who takes takes a solo sailing trip around the island of Ireland, and he also goes to the Scottish coast. And in that book, he kind of muses a lot on, on Irish and Scottish history, and it came up in that book. And I was like, wow, that sounds, like, that sounds really cool. And, and I know that Seamus Heaney did a translation of it. Um, so that kind of like, you know, that brought it back to my attention, and I, I had to try it. So anyway. Wow. That's, yeah, it should be, it should be interesting. Um, so I'm, if you don't want, I'll just continue and I'm going to give our listeners, anybody who's hanging on here still a little teaser of uh, our next episode, which would be episode 25, but it's going to be kind of a, a little bit of a departure, but a special, I'm calling it a special episode. I think it's going to be really interesting and fun. So you mind if I just go right 25 a. <laughs> What's that? I said 25A. 25A. You know, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, because and we say that because this is it's going to be a, a different format than other episodes that we've had. But I think it, I think this has the potential to be really rich, and I'm we're really looking forward to it. Um, so I have a connection to this to this writer through uh, a friend of mine, um, someone I've actually met in the past, 
but he's about to release, uh, his name is Dr. Dennis Rubello, and he's a, a, a known speaker and writer, and uh, he has a psychology uh, background, um, but he's, he's done everything from speak to sports teams, to businesses, to other types of groups. And he's, he's been working for a long time uh, on the subject of storytelling and personal narrative. And I remember this, I actually attended one of his sessions, and this is probably going back 15 years ago. Um, but he's always been a champion of, of learning how to tell your own story uh, in an interesting way. But it's, you know, it, it goes a little further than that. He connects it to, uh, you know, personal growth and transformation. And, um, you know, we often have, as he would say, we often have opportunities in our lives to talk about ourselves and tell our story. But um, Dr. Abella would say we, we kind of, we, we miss the opportunity that's there. And oftentimes when we're asked to do that, it's in a, you know, he brings up, and I think it's a, an astute point that it's, it's often a situation where the stakes are a little bit higher. You know, maybe we're trying to sell ourselves for a job. Maybe we're trying to raise funds. Or maybe we're trying to find a, a life partner or whatever it would be. The stakes are a little bit higher. And so we're asked, when we're asked to talk about ourselves, um, that's an opportunity to really kind of express what makes you valuable or what makes you uniquely valuable. So he's been thinking and working on this with groups and thinking about himself for a long time, a, a couple decades. And so this, he's got a new book that's coming out in the middle of March, and it's called Story Like You Mean It. How to build and use your personal narrative to illustrate what who you really are. And so this notion of, you know, we got in touch and we started talking a little bit. And um, uh, Jude and I have both been reading the book and this notion of how everybody has a story and how you can um, craft your own story to, in order to reflect who you really are is maybe a little bit more complex and a little bit more interesting than we might think. Uh, on first glance. So we've been going back and forth with Dr. Rebello. He's agreed to, uh, we're going to actually going to talk to him on the next uh, episode of our podcast. We're going to have him on for an interview. We're going to talk about his new book coming out. And I think we're really going to get into, you know, some of these aspects of, uh, you know, what does it mean to tell stories? What does it mean to tell your own personal story? And why is that valuable for everybody to kind of think about that and work on that? Uh, in their own life for these opportunities when we may have, uh, you know, a vested interest in it in one way or another. So that's the subject of his book. We're going to have this an interview with Dr. Dennis Rebello about his book, Story Like You Mean It. And dude, without getting too far into it, you know, uh, storytelling and narrative is important to us, not only you as a writer, us as people, but it also has, you know, implications for what we both do professionally. And it does for a lot of people. Um, in one way or another. So I think this is going to be a rich discussion and kind of broad ranging. And I think it will be really interesting to have a, you know, very erudite and um, personable guest on the show. We're looking forward to talking to Dr. Dennis Rebello on the next episode. Yeah, John, great setup. I mean, I, I would just say, you know, I'm not going to get too far into it, but it, it's going to be, it's going to be illuminating a different kind of episode for us. I have to candidly at first, I was kind of like, you know, um, this kind of sounds like a businessy book and, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm not sure it's for me or whatever, but I quickly kind of pivoted from that as I started to get into his, uh, Dr. Rebello's book and think about how, you know, and it, and it was really kind of a, a, a knee jerk reaction on my part because I was thinking, 
and Dr. Abello's book got into got me into it a little but thinking about how fundamental storytelling is to my entire life you know it occupies my life outside of work but also very much inside of work mm -hmm. and I do a lot of writing and business that's storytelling but this notion that is in the book and I think this is what's going to be interesting um, because Dr. Rebello comes from a I, I believe it's a, a psych, psych, psychologist background John yeah. if I have that right yeah that's a large part of yeah of his background right Right. So this notion of using um, our personal narratives and telling stories in order to mine who we are as people and to use that to gain confidence in ourselves and speak about ourselves with greater authority, greater confidence and, um, you know, be a, a solid, you know, not only member of society, but uh, able to dialogue better with other people and advance whatever it is we want to advance. That's very interesting to me. And uh, Dr. Rebello gets into it in his book, which you were both working on. So it's it's going to be an illuminating discussion. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so I hope people will uh, tune in and spread the word about not only Dr. Rebello's book that's coming out, but about this episode because – you know, I think it's I think it's going to touch on a lot of different subjects that are important to a, a, a wide range of people, most all people, really, um, but may touch on what you do for a living or, or uh, you know, what you think about from time to time or your encounters with other people. And so I think it's yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion. So looking forward to that. And um, I think that wraps things up, doesn't it, dude? Yeah, thanks for set up. So everybody, please tune in for that. And we thank you for joining us today. And we thank you for listening to the Book Exchange podcast. That's going to do it. I hope you were thrilled with the results. And we'll be back uh, the next time as John set up. So uh, take care, everybody. And thanks again.